In today's Romans reading, the Apostle Paul is addressing the believers in Rome. And he begins by using a concept that they all understood. Peace. The Roman concept of peace. For the early readers of this text understood what peace was. Peace was when a military came in and leveled out your people and told them, you can fight no longer. You will now experience this was a misunderstood peace. This was a coerced peace. For the Romans, the Pax Romana was a period of peace which was forced through the perpetuation of violence. And yet the peace that the Apostle Paul is telling about that Jesus offers is not forced. It is not coerced. It is not held in place by power structures. Paul uses the language of peace to present an alternative vision of peace made not through military strength and political power, but through the love of God made known in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This forced peace found in the Roman Empire was not peace at all. It was simply the absence of conflict brought about by violence. What the Apostle Paul is getting at is that God in Christ offers us something entirely different. Peace that is first and foremost rooted in God's love. As I've been on the mend from pneumonia the last couple weeks, I found myself reading a book by Shane Claiborne entitled Jesus for President. That would probably be the best option in our current political environment, uh, but, but I doubt writing in Jesus' name is going to get us anywhere. But I found myself reading this book, and in it, Claiborne utters these words. He says, criminologists teach us that one of the quickest ways to defuse violence is by doing the unexpected. Those who commit violence depend on that predictability of their victims. And when their victims do something that surprises them, it throws the whole plan out of whack. Jesus is always doing weird things in the midst of conflict. When the men are about to stone the adulteress, he bends down and draws in the dirt. And eventually, they all drop their stones. And there's the time when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off this guy's ear. Jesus rebukes him, and then grabs the dude's ear and puts it back on. This must have been a little awkward for everyone, especially the soldiers. I mean, how do you arrest a guy who just put your buddy's ear back on? Jesus' theological stunts and prophetic imagination surprise and disarm. They make people laugh. Catch folks off guard, even folks who wish they could hate him. God's peace does not come through violence. It does not come through political power or military strength but through the love of God made known in Jesus the Christ through the Holy Spirit. God has always been working towards the peace of the world. From the very beginning, God created and God's creation was good. The Apostle Paul reminds us, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we understand this justification by faith? 
For it is our faith in God that justifies our sin. It is through our faith that we are drawn into God's very presence and experience peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what do we have to have faith in? Probably the first answer would have something to do with Jesus. And yet... Do we just have faith in a name? Do we just have faith in a guy who lived a couple thousand years ago? What do we have faith in? Two individuals who dialogue about our beliefs, how we are saved, and what our faith is to be in. One is named Eric, and the other is named Sophia. Eric says, in the beginning, God created humankind. And humans had perfect communion with God. But in the garden, humans chose to sin. And because God is so holy and righteous, God cannot look at humans anymore because they are sinful and God is holy. So God turns God's back on God's very own creation. Sophia, on the other hand, says, In the beginning, God created humankind, and humans had perfect communion with God. But in the garden, humans chose to sin. And in human sin, all of humanity is subjected to corruption, suffering, and death. But because God is life and love, God cannot bear to see God's creation subjected to corruption, suffering, and death. So rather than turning away from God's creation, God turns forward God God's creation. Do we see a difference? For Eric, our sin causes God to turn entirely away from us. And yet for Sophia, our sin causes God to become even more compassionate towards us. For Sophia, God is always turned towards us. Eric says, no matter how hard humans try, no matter what we do, God will not look upon us because we are sinful. And no amount of good works can repay God for the offense that we've given to God. Humans are in constant separation from God. But then God sends down his own son to become a human and live as we should have lived, sinless before God, to erase the eternal debt caused by sin. Yet Sophia has a very different narrative. Sophia says, in in turning toward God's creation and devastated by the effects of sin, God becomes the human to suffer alongside of God's own creation. And when the woman who in her brokenness goes from relationship to relationship, seeking true, authentic love, God sits beside her at the well and says, I am the water of life. I love you. And when the man who has used his fellow countrymen for his own financial gain while being ostracized and outcast from his own people, God says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I will eat with you. And when the woman who is caught in adultery is paraded out before the entire community, God says, I do not condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Eric says, you know, when Jesus was crucified, God lays all the sin of the human race on his son. And when God does that, God turns his back on Jesus. And Jesus experiences the fullness of God's wrath that ultimately should be directed toward us. Sophia responds, when humans in fear, cowardice, envy, greed, and political ambition take, betray, and spit on God, God remains silent. 
when humans abuse, whip, and crucify God, God says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Sophia continues, God has never turned away from us to begin with. When humans experience death, God says love is stronger than death. And even though you make your bed in Sheol, I am there. God dies with us as Jesus the Christ. But then God says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Two different versions of what we are to have faith in. Eric, an angry God who is subject to God's own laws, or Sophia, painting a loving God who refuses to abandon us in our sickness, in our suffering, and in our time of need. I think I like Sophia's version a little. Jesus didn't come to wipe away an eternal debt. God is not subject to God's own laws. God became a human being to become even closer to us. The Apostle Paul reminds us, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. We are to believe by faith that God has always been turned toward us. God never turns away from us because our suffering has sin. Our sin and suffering actually cause God to make moves to come even closer to us. For we believe in the God who hears the cries of the slaves in Egypt. A God who is moved by the plight of the suffering. We affirm a God who cares so much that God desires a personal relationship with each of us. God is turned towards us even when our backs are facing God. God is turned towards us even when we're running away from God. God is turned toward us when our lives are so busy that we ignore God's call. God is turned toward us every moment of every day. For God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And in this Romans chapter 5, it's really the first time in the book of Romans, that the Apostle Paul actually brings up the concept of love. Biblical grammarians argue whether the phrase God's love should be objective or subjective. Objective meaning the love that we have for God, or subjective meaning the love that God has for us. And many scholars have discussed at length about how this phrase ought to be interpreted not sure that there's a distinction. Maybe it means both the love from God that comes down towards us and the love that we have for God together. This seems like an appropriate work of the Holy Spirit, both to communicate God's love for us and to make it possible for us to love God with that same kind of love. Think for a moment about the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit filled the disciples and empowered them to share God's love, but also communicated in such a way that other individuals could understand God's love as well. Christ 
has demonstrated God's love for us. And it is the same love of the same God that the Holy Spirit pours into our lives. But the Spirit not only pours out that love to us, but also through us. God's love was poured into the disciples at Pentecost, but then flowed through them into the lives of others. We are justified by believing this. For God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That God in Christ became a human being and then sent the Holy Spirit both to reveal God's love, therefore bringing us new life, hope, and peace, but also to empower us to love that radically. To love that unconditionally. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Feminist and Christian theologian Serene Jones talks about justification in her short essay she wrote entitled Grace Practices. In it she says these words, Comprehending the full force of this radically unmerited quality of love is a difficult task for believers, particularly because we live in a world that consistently assesses our worth based on calculated evaluations of what we do and who we are. The power of the doctrine of justification comes in its announcement of God's forthright rejection of such evaluations with respect to God's love for us. God loves us simply because God has decided to do so. Not because of who we or others think we are or because of what we do. Jones continues, When one comprehends the force of this unconditional love, one is then empowered to develop a certain detachment from the worldly evaluations of the self. One begins to see that what one does and who one becomes in the messy unfolding of our daily lives are not finally determinative of who we are in the eyes of one begins to see that what one does and who one becomes in the messy unfolding of our daily lives are not finally determined of who we are in the eyes of God. And when one comes to know that there is nothing one can do to earn God's love, that one's actions are not constantly evaluated by a divine judge who at any point may punish our failures by a, by a divine withdrawal of salvation, one is only then free to engage life with greater vigor. Engaging life with greater vigor. Encountering the grace and peace of God made known to us through Jesus the Christ and then given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are loved. God has never turned God's back on you. Your family. For your life. You are loved. God loves us simply because God has chosen to do so. And there is nothing that you or I can do to disqualify ourselves from that love. Do you really believe that you are loved? Do you really believe that the creator of the universe actually cares deeply about you? The fact of the matter is, God knows all the skeletons in our closet. 
our inconsistent prayer life, our lack of faith, our frustration when things don't work out the way we want them to, our jealousy of other people, our quick tempers, our self-centered, egotistical love that is self-serving, our prejudice towards those who are different than ourselves, and our perverted language and thoughts, yet despite all of this stuff, God still chooses to love Even when we wade through the muck and the mire of life. Even when our sin causes scars, wounds, and pain in the lives of others. God is turned toward us. Reaching out to us. Longing for us to accept that love. And come home to God's loving arms. Coming home to God's loving arms. God simply loves us because God chooses to do so. Not because of anything that we have done. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. God is turned forward reaching out to us, longing for us to accept that love and to come home to God's loving arms. In the Ragwuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning, he talks about this concept of home. And in it he says, home is that sacred space, external or internal, where we don't have to be afraid. Where we are confident of hospitality and love. And he says, in our society, we have many homeless people sleeping not only in the streets or in shelters or in hotels, but drifters who are in flight, who never come home to themselves. They seek a safe place through alcohol or drugs or security and success or competence or friends or pleasure or notoriety or knowledge or even a little religion. They've become strangers to themselves. People who have an address but are never at home. Who never hear the voice of love. Or experience the freedom of being one of God's children. Manning says, to those of us in flight who are afraid to turn around, lest we run into ourselves, Jesus says, you have a home. I am your Claim me as your home. You will find it to be the intimate place where I have found my home. It is right where you are. In your innermost being. In your heart. Time for us to come home. For we are not alone. We have a home. God has always been turned toward us. Longing for a deeper, more authentic relationship with us. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We are not alone. We have a home. 
God has turned towards us longing for a deeper, more authentic relationship with us. God offers us healing this day. Hope, healing, and holiness. We matter to someone. We are cared for. We are You're not alone. You are loved. All the things that we try to cover up, God knows. And God still chooses to love us despite all of us stuff. We are not alone. We have a home. God is turned forward. This morning, we're going to have some time for prayer and anointing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to sing a song entitled, He Loves Us, affirming that whatever is going on in our life, wherever we are, God in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is madly in love with us. So I'm going to pray a prayer over the oil. And if you would like to come and be anointed as they sing, you can come and kneel at the altar or sit in one of the front rows. Let us pray. O God, our Redeemer, giver of health and salvation, you love us. And we give you thanks, O God, for the gift of oil used by prophets and apostles as a sign of your grace. Fill us with your love, O God. Send your Spirit now, we pray that those who receive this anointing and repentance and faith may catch a glimpse of the fullness of love through which you have for them. Make us well, O God, in accordance with your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you'd like to be a